1: You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life.
0: Welcome, everybody, to the 300th episode of Wealth Formula Podcast. This is Buck Joffrey, and today we're going to do a number of questions on the Ask Buck side of things. I think those are sort of an appropriate thing to do for a momentous show, and then we're going to also interview a few guests. Briefly, just to say hello, my first guest here right now is Clementine joffrey And you have any nicknames or aliases that you go by? Tiny and Tiny. What do you want to do when you grow up? I want to be a doctor. You do? Mm-hmm. Why in the world would you want to be a doctor? Because <laughs> you want to help people. Mm-hmm. That's very sweet. Don't do it for the money. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. All right, one last question for you: What exactly is money?
1: Something that you can spend
0: on. Why does somebody think it's important enough to give you something for it?
1: Because everybody has to have something.
0: That's true. Everybody does have to have something. Our next guest on Well Formula Podcast. Well, why don't you introduce yourself?
1: I'm My name is Cosma Joffrey, and I'm nine years old.
0: And who's your favorite team?
1: The Vikings.
0: Okay, so Cosma, I know you like numbers, and I know you like Money. So tell me, what do you want to be when you grow up? What you are. (laughs) And what is daddy? I
1: don't know what you are.
0: Okay, so if you had all the money in the world, what would you do with it?
1: Buy a football team.
0: Really? Like
1: the whole NFL.
0: And what advice do you have for people who want to make more money? Be the boss. Oh, that's a good idea. So you could be an entrepreneur. That's Mm -hmm. probably the best way. You're absolutely right. Well, thank you for being our guest uh, on Wealth Formula, and we will have you on in episode 400, which is probably about two years from now. Okay. So my final guest on Wealth Formula podcast for this episode, well, let's ask her, what's your name?
1: I'm Camilla.
0: Camilla Joffrey, and you've been on this show before, right? How long ago was that? Do you remember?
1: Two years.
0: Two years. Yeah, about two years because it was episode 200 and you probably were on episode 100. I have no idea. All right. So I have a couple of questions for you. And, you know, you're older, so I'm going to ask you a little bit more serious stuff. So the next time you're going to be on this show probably will be in episode 400. So that's probably what, two years from now. So what does the world look like? in january of 2024 what's your prediction because we're going to come back and listen to this
1: uh high school taller
0: hopefully how about the world more COVID. really well i feel like it'll either get worse or better i don't think it'll stay the same do you think we'll be wearing masks in two years
1: i'm gonna be optimistic and say no
0: i'm gonna be optimistic and say we better not okay one last question for you what do you want to be when you grow up and why
1: I want to be Taylor
0: Swift. Well, uh, I know somebody who can manage all that money of yours once you get it. Me. Okay. All right. Well, that's all I got. And uh, thanks for being on episode 300. We'll see you in two years. Okay. So this is indeed episode number 300 of Wealth Formula Podcast, which means, well, roughly about six years of the show. What's interesting is, you know, to me, it's it's pretty miraculous because it started out as kind of a hobby, some time to speak to an imaginary audience because there wasn't very many of you back then. I mean, literally, there was nobody. And now, you know, there's thousands of downloads every month. And uh, that's pretty amazing to watch. At any rate, you know, now we're over well over a million downloads total. I don't even know how many downloads we've had total in the six years, but it's a lot. And, you know we've got this incredible community which is super cool too. So I mean there is so much to think about here with 300 episodes just as a reflection. You know, when I think about the last 6 years, it's both encouraging in some respects, it's also kind of scary it's a little uh when you think about it. I mean, I see over 6 years I can see how much, you know, progress that I've personally made in terms of you know, my learning and my, you know, frankly, I have a lot more money than I had six years ago. And I see how much smarter I've gotten. And I see the power of this brand that we've created together. And, you know, and I see obviously the incredible potential for the next several years, because it's like, gosh, this is not that old, right? We've only gone for like six years. But on the other hand, I'm also terrified, right? I mean, think about time. It's just a crazy thing. And when I think about the way life used to be when I first started this podcast, there's inevitable changes that come with life. And whether that's, you know, people passing away, kids born, children growing up, in my case, you know, and in, in many cases, marriage is coming to an end. Uh, it's, it's scary. Uh, but, you know, I take solace in knowing that while change really is inevitable, there's no question. That's the one thing you can guarantee is change, right? But the overall direction of your life is, uh, it's it's not inevitable. I mean, like investing, uh, it's not just a product of hope. Uh, your life's equity ultimately is created through diligence and hard work, and you, you know you got to imagine what you want and you got to go get it. Anyway, uh, enough waxing poetic. When we come back, I'm going to take questions as an episode of Ask Buck. With an average investor internal rate of return of almost 34%, with hold times just over three and a half years, these guys know what the meaning of velocity of money is. If you're an accredited investor, make sure to check out what they're up to right now at ReliantFund4.com. Again, that's ReliantFund4.com. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Let's start an episode of Ask Buck, and I'll tell you... uh, There's lots of questions. Uh, We're going to really focus on the, at least for this show, the ones that have video associated with them because I prefer those. I like to hear your voice, and we've got a number of them. So we're going to start with that. And what we don't get to in terms of questions, we will do in follow-up shows. We'll have probably a series of Ask Buck shows after this. So let's see now. Okay, the first question comes from Anant.
1: Hey Buck, uh, this is Anand from Atlanta. I'm one of your newest members. Uh, I'm very impressed by the wealth velocity formula.
0: I had a quick question on that. Uh, do you think this wealth velocity
1: formula would be something that would keep on going for many, many years, or is this something that is time limited due to circumstances in the financial markets, or the housing cycle, or some other factors? Uh, is it safe to assume that this would last at least another twenty, thirty years the way it's going, or is it short-lived?
0: I would appreciate if you can answer that question. Thank you. Well, thanks for the question on it. Um, so, when you say a wealth velocity formula, I'm assuming that you're talking about what you know, sort of the mathematical formula that I have used to describe the wealth formula, right? Wealth is equal to A product of mass times velocity times uh, leverage, where mass is the amount of money you invest. Velocity is how quickly you get your money in your pocket to redeploy. And, well, leverage is just good debt for the most part, right? That's what that is. Now, I would argue that the equation here is indeed timeless. But, of course, the determination on whether it works or not is really dependent it's dependent on the assets that you invest in, the operators that manage them, uh, the managers that uh, manage them, et cetera. You know, if you look at the individual variables, what is mass? Mass is just, you know, obviously the more money you invest, the more you have potential to grow. I mean, that's why the rich get richer. They have more money to invest. So they're investing a higher proportion of their income. Therefore, they can grow their money faster. Uh, So, you know, really that is, as long as your investing is producing a positive rate of growth, that that's not going to change. Velocity, again, how quickly do you get your money in your pocket? That's what that means. It depends on what you invest in. With cash out refis on value add real estate that we do, um, typically in you know our space in the uh, in syndication and in our investor club, you know that that can happen pretty darn quickly. But even if you're getting a positive positive five percent on your money. Uh, you'll eventually get it back it just you know it might take 20 years uh, for that velocity it's not uh, very fast so it's a, that's not ideal obviously but in times where markets are hot you have the potential to get your money back in your pocket much quicker i mean you're seeing that in real time right now and sometimes that can happen within a, a year or two years where you can get 50 60 70% of your equity back so that you can start reinvesting and obviously you know, it depends on what you're doing, you know, to create equity, value-add real estate, which is, you know, which is my obvious preference, if you haven't figured it out, does not rely on the whole wait, uh, you know, hope and wait for capital appreciation. It The idea is to create appreciation. And if you happen to have tailwinds like we do right now, then great, we're making even more money. So, And finally, you know, there's, uh, I can say with a high level of confidence that debt and leverage, well, they're not going away anytime uh, soon either. Bottom line is people have been using this formula, uh, you know, for years, for forever, and they'll continue to use it in good times and bad. They just have to be, you know, find the operators that are going to figure out how to make the money and, you know, the right assets. And uh, I don't really see that as uh, having a timeline on it. So, hopefully, that answers your question. All right. Next question is from Darshan.
1: What is the typical cost segregation on one of the Western wealth capital deals?
0: Well, that's a good question. And, you know, in the spirit of making this an educational show, I want to rather than just, you know, answer a specific point about a certain kind of investment, I'd rather kind of take it back a level and kind of explain the concept to everybody. Who doesn't maybe know it yet? So, I'm going to give you an example, right, on what this whole thing cost segregation, bonus depreciation, what this is all about. So, my ophthalmologist, uh, you know, I've got whatever, had some floaters, whatever, and I had to go in. But, anyways, talking to my ophthalmologist, and um, he found out what I do a little bit and asked me if I knew of somebody good to do a 1031 exchange for him. And I asked him, well, well, what's the, you know, what's the situation? And basically what happened was, um, you know, he has a house that he bought a couple years ago here in Santa Barbara. I think it was like 2 million. He's selling it, uh, selling it for 4 million. He doesn't, you know, obviously uh, the traditional way you get out of, Paying the uh, capital gains, long-term capital gains on that, is by doing a ten thirty-one exchange, a like exchange, and you know that's uh, that's what the traditional thing has been to do that. Now, so he's planning to sell this property, and I said, well, gosh, you know, you could do that, but it's going to be expensive, it's going to be hard, it's it's a lot of work, and at the end of the day, I I'm not a CPA. But I'll tell you what I would do. And that's, of course, what I'm going to tell you now. And remember, I'm not a tax professional, so I'm going to just tell you my opinion and what I believe I would do in that situation. So I'd I'd sell the house and invest at least the profits, probably, you know, basis, more some level of the basis as well, into more residential real estate. And then in doing that, I would, you know, do a cost segregation analysis on that you know, in that residential real estate uh, on the new property, and then I'd use bonus depreciation to essentially, you know, try to offset the gains I made on the sales. So how does that work, right? Because we talk about that kind of stuff frequently, and so let's try to back up. So let's say I took that $2 million from the sale that I had and I bought an apartment building. I leveraged it into a $6 million apartment building. Now, after that, I would have the cost segregation study. It's an engineering study and that would determine what percentage of, of the asset would be considered real property and real property is basically things you can't move, right? Uh, the foundation and you know parts of the property that you can't just throw out the door, including the door, the stuff that you can throw out the door, including the door, would be chattel or otherwise known as personal property. So what a cost segregation study does is essentially segregates the property. So there might be 70% of it that's real property and 30% is personal property or chattel. That is significant. Why? And I, by the way, I use this 70% in the 30% numbers because in residential real estate, that's pretty close. I think a pretty good estimate in general, 70% real property, 30% is uh, typically coming out as chattel. I've done several of these and, and it's frequently similar to that. But anyway, so why is this significant? Why would you go to this? Well, Again, this we're talking about investment property, and with residential real estate, just like all real estate, you have uh, the IRS allows you for to have depreciation, and on on real property that is twenty seven point five years, or about three three point six percent per year, which is you know it's it's it is something, but it's not much. On the other hand, the depreciation schedule for the real property or personal property component of that asset is five years. But here's the kicker: with bonus depreciation laws currently effective, uh, also in 2022, that five years can be squeezed down into the first year. Now that is huge, as many of you know. Now going back to our example, so what's 30 uh, percent? Okay, we talked about 30 percent being personal property, 70 percent being real. So what is 30 percent of a six million dollar building? Well, it's it's about 1.8 million dollars. So the first year paper loss on that building might be uh, so it might be 1.8 million dollars. Now, to buy that building, what kind of equity would you have needed in the first place? You know, probably somewhere between 25 and 30 uh, percent down, right? In other words, the down payment needed would, in this case, closely approximate the long-term capital gains and essentially wipe that gain out. That's what I would do. Again, I'm not a CPA. I'm not a tax attorney. I'm not giving you advice on what to do. Now, without getting into too much detail, some of you know that the story is not even done yet. It even gets better because of the issue that ordinary income is always taxed before uh, long-term capital gains uh, in the IRS algorithm, and then that creates additional benefit for you, but we won't get into that because it's just too much. Now, the question that you had in the first place related to uh, Western Wealth Capital, which is one of my partnerships with Dave Steele, Janet LePage. And you see, the thing is, you don't have to buy your own property to do all the things I just outlined. You can uh, you know, invest in syndications. And that's kind of what he's asking about. Whenever we buy an apartment building, we do a uh, cost segregation analysis and bonus uh, depreciation, take bonus depreciation uh, when we can. So every one of our properties has debt and the partners obviously are bringing equity. And then that depreciation flows through to the partners. So now. It's a simple, you know, it's a bit simple to say this on a large, you know, multi-million dollar apartment complex, because it's not as easy as saying, you know, 70% loan, 30% equity, and then you're going to wipe out all of the equity with bonus depreciation. It doesn't work out like that exactly, because for larger buildings, well, first of all, it's a bit more variable in terms of the engineering size themselves, but also with You know, a company like Western Wealth Capital that is heavily value-add, a significant portion of the equity raised is actually used for value-add purposes, right? It's not, it's basically more than the cost of the the building is actually raised because it's going to be used for improvements. Now, this is only going to be seen as a loss for you if it's used up before uh, year's end. So anyway, however, long story short, what I can tell you, Darshan, is that K-1 Law Losses in our experience have ranged uh, for investors between eighty and over a hundred percent for investors as a percentage of equity invested. So, if you invest a hundred thousand dollars, it's been somewhere between eighty thousand and a hundred thousand plus loss on a K one. So, hopefully, that explains the the whole story and gives a little bit more education as well. And frankly, right now, I will say that I don't think a ten thirty one exchange is very useful in most situations. Alright, let's move on to the next question. Hi, Buck. Longtime listener,
1: first time caller. Just wanted to see if you would caught the article or the video with Mr. Wonderful Kevin O'Leary. And when he said H and then he stopped, uh, referring to hopefully H bar Hidera. Thanks for everything, buddy.
0: Yeah, good. Yeah, Eric, I do remember that. Um, And actually, you know, he came out and a few times is actually specifically said H-bar. I don't think he was trying to hide anything. I think he just forgot what it was. So he was like H. uh, What was that? I don't remember what it was. Anyway, H-bar, if you look up Kevin O'Leary and, you know, H-bar, you'll see he's actually said it a few times. He has that. He's interested in he's at HBAR, Solana, some of the major things there. But again, let's talk about the whole thing just in context for learning purposes. So HBAR is, of course, well, maybe not, of course, but for maybe you who don't know as well, it's a native currency. It's a cryptocurrency for the Hedera Hashgraph Protocol, co-founder of Hedera Hashgraph, Mance Harmon. Uh, has been on this show a couple of times. I really encourage you to go back and listen to those shows. Now, full disclosure: when I talk about HBAR, I buy HBAR at the initial offering, and it's a significant part of my you know investment portfolio in digital currencies. However, I will say that I truly, truly believe it is far in a way the most undervalued protocol of its type right now in terms of the token price. And if you look at what these guys have done and the partnerships they have, it's really hard not to imagine it's having a significant upside. And you know what? It's not even on Coinbase yet, which is really the time to buy it because of course Coinbase gets Coinbase, then it pumps, right? Now, you know, I I think the only thing to add, just to add to this uh, conversation, I think is useful. Is a lot of people ask me about cryptocurrency in general. And what I will tell you is, in my opinion, there is Bitcoin and then there's everything else. Bitcoin is like digital gold, and I think there is a significant value in it as a storage of value. But I don't really think of Bitcoin as software, which is what I think of everything else, whether it's be Ethereum, HBAR, Solana, all these things. And I think if you're like me and you think of these things as software, you start thinking, well, what software is going to whatever software is the best is going to be the ones that do best. Right. So it's not, you know, so then then that's that's why I'm a big fan of HBAR. I think it's great software. But again, I am invested in it. You know, so to just be aware, look it up. It's it's interesting stuff. All right. Next question.
1: Hey, Buck, Garth here. What are your thoughts on virtual real estate and NFTs? With the new Web 3.0 now, with blockchain, people are now able to own virtual
0: items. And with the larger metaverse coming, where I think the economy will soon
1: allow you to move virtual assets from one world to another. I see stories of people and celebrities buying virtual lands and NFTs and virtual worlds making large profits. I even saw an investment company where you can invest with them and they find the best virtual worlds and lands to invest in. What are your thoughts on metaverse investing?
0: Well, great question, Garth. So let me start saying that I think metaverse, uh, NFTs, all this stuff, they're going to be huge. I mean, they're already kind of huge, right? So but let me also say that I don't really understand the space very well. I'm not an expert here. And so, I mean, I haven't made a big move in terms of, you know, investing specifically into NFTs and stuff like that. I just don't really understand it. And I think that may be just a generational thing. Um, you know, I'm a Gen X a middle-aged dude. You know, listen, I understand the value in using distributed ledger technology to help identify ownership and tiles and software and all that stuff. But I don't necessarily understand the appeal of things that only exist online. It's almost like having, you know, like I guess a baseball card that only is online, right? I've really tried to wrap my head around this and why people would pay for things that aren't real. And the only thing I can surmise is that my concept of what is real is different from what other people think of as is real. And again, it's probably a generational thing. I mean, let's let's take gaming for example. And if you're a gamer, right, like gaming's not like atari and nintendo like it was when i was a kid this is like you know you're playing against somebody in russia and there's people watching you and I don't know. It's it's kind of a crazy thing. People go to like, go watch gamers and arenas and stuff. And it's, it's bizarre to me, but if you're a gamer and spend a good chunk of your waking hours in the gaming world where others see your character and that's you, that's your character, that is you. And your character has got special swords and guns and stuff like that, that are one of a kind. You might actually value that world because you spend so much time in it because that's what people identify as much as the physical world or even more. In fact, you know, you might not even really think of one of those worlds, a virtual or the, you know, the physical world as as superior to the other. And, you know, I mean, whereas I obviously, you know, I I devalue, I'm sure I devalue the, the, you know, the virtual world compared to the physical world. Again, that may be a generational thing. But yes, I do think there's a sufficient evidence already that this is going to be huge. Facebook knows it's going to change everything. They changed their name to Meta. Um, I just don't know how to invest in it in a smart way. And of course, if anybody does, if anybody's an expert, let me know. And I'd love to hear from you. Shoot me an email, buck at wealthformula.com. All right, next question here. Hey, Buck, this is Joe Tuma. My wife and I are physicians and we receive W-2 income. And I felt that we were limited and our ability to take advantage of the accelerated depreciation that some can with the syndications from Western Wealth
1: Capital. We both own offices that we lease to the practices and realize that by increasing the rent, we can move some of our active income to the passive
0: real estate income side. Is there a limit to how much of that that can be done? Do I have to be able to justify the amount that we're charging ourselves? Thanks. Uh, Joe, um, so obviously I can't give you tax advice, but I do have a similar situation where I you know, I have a practice. I don't practice anymore, but I have a practice in Chicago, and that is renting from one of the buildings I own. Uh, and I can tell you that the advice I have gotten and use is that it just needs to be market rent now obviously it can be a little bit you know on the high end of the market rent but just think remember it you know hogs get slaughtered right so just make sure it charges uh, market rent for medical space rather than office space you know uh, medical space is obviously a lot more expensive and i think for the most part your you know your your cpa your pet tax professional just has to be able to justify it so I i would ask them what they're comfortable with now of course there are other strategies that, you know, doctors like use in their practices that might also help. I mean, listen, that's just one strategy. I know, um, we've talked, uh, personally, we won't get into your situation, but you might have a, you know, you might consider as many doctors do, and, um, you know, as part of their practice, uh, starting a second company that serves as a MSO, a managing service organization, you know, and that owns all of your equipment and rents out, to your practice and then that company might also be in charge of your marketing and your billing and, and and it it charges your practice for that. You know the bottom line is, you know, as long as you get paid, you know, a typical, you know, doctor in your field, that's what you need to do. And the rest of it, if you can figure out different companies and, and structures, with your tax professional, I mean, there's, there's a lot of stuff being left on the table just because people, uh, because people don't have very good CPAs. So I would really suggest, uh, you know, bottom line that you, you talk to a tax professional who can break down other parts of your business and see what the optimal structure might be. All right, let's see. The next question is from Kevin.
1: Hey, Buck. This is Kevin Wilson from Salt Lake City. First, I want to thank you for all the great content you have produced. You have been a key part of my financial awakening over the past few years, as I've implemented many of the strategies you often discuss, including wealth formula banking, asset protection, and several Western wealth deals. I appreciate all you've done and have recommended your podcast to many friends and colleagues. My question is regarding how you allocate your personal investable capital. I'm sure you derive a lot of income from your many business endeavors with Wealth Formula Banking and your role as general partner with Western Wealth as well as other ventures. So what do you do with all this income to increase its velocity by reinvesting in other projects? In other words, how do you allocate your passive income investments? Thanks again.
0: Thanks for all the uh, kind words, Kevin, and um... Yeah, I mean, as you mentioned, I do have multiple streams of income. It's not just real estate. Um, you know, I, I have other streams of income as well, but my primary time really is spent in real estate. So that's that's really important because that makes it so I can be considered what's called a real estate professional. Now, and you've heard me talk about this before, I'm quite sure, but that's critically important to the way I invest. And it's almost makes it, you know, there's a very asymmetric reason for me to continue investing heavily in real estate. You see, as a review, the real estate professional status uh, basically, you know, requires that, you know, you, this is what you do for the most part full time, 750 hours minimum per year. You don't do anything more than that outside of real estate. So you don't have a job that you're working more. And even though you're on 750 hours of real estate, um, you don't qualify. But I'm not here to give you the definitions. You can look it up. The real estate professional status, though, again, it overly incentivized me to invest back into real estate. And, you know, I spend the majority of it, I would say almost all of it, on either, you know, real estate that I am, you know, buying by myself, which is not very often anymore, or in the syndications that are coming through our investor club, which if you're accredited, you can sign up for at wealthformula.com. But bottom line is, you know that that's really important because you know I've been thinking. For example, I really want to have more Bitcoin. You know, uh, I think that's one of the things that I think is something that is got a lot of upside left. Even if we, you know, if we if we go lower before that, before then, I think you know my, I'm still projecting a two hundred fifty thousand dollar Bitcoin in five years. That's a prediction, right? But here's the challenge, right? So if I earn, let's say I earn a hundred thousand dollars and I buy hundred. $1,000 of bitcoin. The absolute cost to me will not only be the cost of the bitcoin but the taxes I pay on the earned income. So living in California, you know, 50% uh basically is what I'm paying in taxes. So living in California that $100,000 of bitcoin effectively cost me $150,000 because I'm going to keep my income and I'm going to pay $50,000 in taxes. So that's kind of hard for me to swallow because, on the other hand, if I earn a hundred thousand dollars of ordinary income or you know, passive income or whatever, and invest a hundred thousand dollars in real estate, guess what? Because of the cost segregation, analysis, bonus depreciation, all that stuff I talked about, I not only make returns on the real estate, but the government essentially funded half of it for me because of the depreciation I take on that investment. So you know, basically, I'm not only going to get the return there, but I'm not going to, you know, pay. I mean, the amount of taxes I'm going to pay on that income is de minimis. So it's like a big time win, win, win. Bottom line is, though, that the real estate professional status influences uh, that substantially. So I'm still way heavy into real estate investing, to answer your question, particularly multifamily. I will say that, you know, it used to be about 90%. Just our syndications, and you know, if I had something else, I had to buy. I haven't, like I said, I'm not buying a lot. But if I buy a house or something like that outside of my syndication stuff, it's separate. But ninety percent towards real estate—that's what it used to be. But I've switched that. Now it's probably about eighty percent. And the reason that is is simple: I make more money now than I used to, right? So why does that matter? Well, I've decided that I can afford to take bigger risks with my investable assets, right? I'm okay now being super risky with 20% of my investable assets um, because I, you know, like the uh, opportunity or the possibility of hitting something out of the park um, and adding a zero to my net worth, right? So that that's why um, I have gone increasingly into the risk, uh, high risk, high reward categories uh, like cryptocurrency. By the way, I should just point out as an aside that I have figured out one interesting way to write off investments in Bitcoin. And if you're an accredited investor or if you and you've signed up for our investor club at WealthFormula.com, you are going to find out pretty soon how it is possible to have exposure to Bitcoin and uh, take a significant write-off. Anyway, uh, you're going to hear about that pretty soon. Okay, that's, that's all I got uh, in terms of questions. Uh, we'll be right back. I'm going to just finish up with some thoughts and comments. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Now, hope you enjoyed it. We'll have more Ask Buck in the coming weeks. Uh, I do want to take this chance also uh, to mention one thing. You know, Jerry Gosnell Jerry is a, gosh, he's probably one of the biggest fans of Wealth Formula ever. I used to call him the poster boy. Anyway, I still call him the poster boy of, of Wealth Formula. And he was actually one of our members who I actually interviewed, Jerry, on the show a while ago. Jerry's very sick and, you know, he's uh, not doing so great. And I just want to wish him and his family uh, the best. We love you, Jerry. And thank you for being part of this community for so long. That's it for me this week on Wealth Formula Podcast. This is Buck Joffrey signing off.
1: Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast.
0: Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. As always, consult your own financial
1: team before making any investment. See you next time.